The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. If you're just joining us, we're working through a series in Paul's letter to the church at uh, Thessalonica. And last week, uh, we looked at the beginning part of chapter 4, where Paul had uh, a number of, of very practical pieces of advice for those in the, the church at Thessalonica. He talked about uh, matters relating to sexual immorality. He talked about working diligently uh, and uh, living uh, in brotherly love, all, as Paul put it, that they might walk more and more in the way that is pleasing to God, that they might accomplish God's will for them, namely their sanctification. And so that's what we talked about last week, and, and this week we'll turn to the latter ch- half of chapter 4. And what may seem to be a more theological question than practical question is we look at a passage in which Paul addresses questions about the second coming of Christ. But I think what we'll see is that uh, this theology or this doctrine that Paul describes in this passage is just as eminently practical for our life and the way we live as what we looked at last week. So tonight we'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. I encourage you to follow along with me as I read what Paul has to say through the Holy Spirit. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray as we come to this text. Oh God, what we have read, while written by a man, Paul, is nothing less than the words that you have given to us and you have written to us. Words of encouragement and words of knowledge that we might have hope in the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as we meditate on this passage together, I pray that you would give us a greater joy in our Savior, a greater anticipation of being together with him, and that you would show us where we need to grow in our faith and our Savior. To your glory we pray this. Amen. It was the spring of 2011, just over two years ago, when the second coming of Christ was somewhat unexpectedly and boldly broadcast to my site as I was downtown Lancaster City. I was down there with uh, my family, and we were walking down the street when all of a sudden a big truck 
turned the corner right in front of me with billboards on both sides of the truck, about 8 feet high and 12 feet across. And if you uh, remember two years ago, those billboards said, May 21st, 2011. Very big in the center, and then underneath it said, Judgment Day, the coming of the Lord is upon us. And if you remember two years ago, May 21st, 2011 was the date that a small yet fervent following of a certain Christian leader had proclaimed would be the day of the return of Christ. Many uh, of his followers spent all of their uh, savings. They emptied their 401ks. Some of them even sold their houses and spent all of the proceeds so that they could proclaim Christ since uh, obviously to them they would not need their houses, their 401ks, or their savings after May 21st. 2011. Unfortunately, it tends to be these bold and uh, often uh, striking misunderstandings of the return of Christ that garner the attention of the media and believers alike. But in in contrast to this sort of puzzle-solving approach of when will Jesus return, let's see if we can nail down a day or an hour In contrast to that, Paul here in this passage is concerned not so much to give us specific details of when this will happen, but rather to give us a beautiful and glorious picture of what it will be like to meet our Savior on that last day. He desires to give us this peek into Christ's return as an encouragement, the hope that we can have in Christ Jesus. In this brief handling of our future hope, I want us to see how Paul here will first answer a question about our hope, then tell us the basis or the ground of our hope, will give us a brief description of our hope, and then tell us the impact of our hope on our lives. So let's start first by looking at a question that Paul addresses about our hope. And we see this starting in verse 13 when Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul is not only a teacher but also a pastor of this small church in Thessalonica is concerned not only with practical matters of living like he was in the passage last week, but also that his young congregation would have an appropriate knowledge and understanding of the truth that Christ had taught them. And it seems from this passage that the Thessalonians had a specific question about the return of Christ. What question was that? Well, their question isn't stated here, only Paul's answer. Uh, But most commentators agree that the question that the Thessalonians had regarded those who had died prior to the coming of Christ. We could perhaps summarize their concern by saying, uh, we know that when Christ comes again, it's going to be a great and a glorious day. We know that we're anticipating, looking forward to expecting this great return of Christ. But if that's going to be such a great day, what about those who die before Christ comes? Are they going to, so to speak, miss out on something of the party? Will they be missing something of the glory of Christ's return if they have died before this event takes place? That seems to be something of the question that the Thessalonians are asking here. And so Paul is quick to say that he does not want his brothers to be uninformed so that they will not grieve without hope 
like those uh, in the world. I want to note two things about this question uh, and answer that Paul seems to be dealing with here. First, note that this question that the Thessalonians are asking, what about those who die before Christ comes? This question is rooted in a deep sense of excitement and anticipation about the return of Christ Jesus. The whole, the whole uh, content of the question, the whole uh, motivation for this question lies in the fact that these Thessalonian Christians are assuming that the coming of Christ will be one of those awe-inspiring, mind-blowing days that no one would want to miss out on. It will be, if you will say, the moment of all moments in the history of the world that we are all looking forward to. The second coming of Christ uh, for the Thessalonians is something where they're so full of anticipation for it that their only anxiety is that some of their fellow believers might miss out on some of the glory of that day. This uh, concern of the coming of the Lord, this anticipation, excitement at the thought of the returning of Christ is not unique to this passage. We see it all throughout the New Testament. Paul, for instance, at the end of his letter to the Corinthians, ends by saying, O Lord, come. And John in Revelation ends with, O Lord, come quickly. And in Revelation we see the saints crying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long till you come and avenge our blood on the earth? The sense of anticipation, of, of desire that Christ come is throughout the New Testament text, and that's at the root of the Thessalonians' question here. But this sense of anticipation, of, of waiting, of longing, of anticipation, of excitement is perfectly understandable if the return of Christ is what Scripture says it is. Scripture says that the return of Christ is nothing less than our wedding day with our Savior. It is nothing less than the day in which we, the bride of Christ, finally get to meet our husband, our groom, our Savior. We finally will get to see this great champion who has come into the far country and defeated the dragon of sin and Satan and has given himself that he might win us to himself. And it's this sense of, of, of anticipation of a bride looking forward to her wedding day that the Bible speaks of our anticipation of Christ's return. Two friends of, of mine from back home were getting married this week, and so my Facebook news feed was full day after day of comments from these two friends about the coming wedding day. And on Monday it was, you know, how many hours until Saturday afternoon? And on Tuesday, it was how many hours and how many minutes till Saturday afternoon? And you, know, you get the countdown by hour, by minute. Some of them, I think, even once I even saw by second um, till the, the wedding day would arrive. And that's the sense of anticipation that the Thessalonians have for the coming of their Savior. This coming of Christ, brothers and sisters, is nothing less than our reunion with God our reunion with the Savior who came, who died for us, and now is coming again to claim us as our own. It is the day when we will be with Jesus. What more could be exciting than to be with Jesus? And that's the day that we're looking forward to. And so the question the Thessalonians have is rooted in this great expectation of what could possibly be worse than missing out on this day 
when we will be with Jesus in glory. It seems as though, as I look into my own heart, as I look into the, the church around me, it is easy to see that the passing of years and decades and centuries seems to have dulled this sense of anticipation and expectation for the return of Jesus. But may we not grow comfortable in this world. May we not grow comfortable and give up hope in the face of the pressures of this world that would dull our expectation of the coming of Christ. I I can think of specific times where I have said to myself, I'm really excited for Jesus to come again, but I really hope he waits until after and fill in the blank. After my wedding day, after the birth of my daughter, after I get a chance to golf with my son, after, you know, you you fill in the blanks with whatever you, you fill in there, but that is a reflection in my own heart of a failure to understand and to have this great sense of anticipation of being with Jesus. May we repent of these casual thoughts on the return of the Lord Jesus. And may our hearts and minds find their greatest hope in the return of our Savior, our King, Jesus Christ. Well, if this is the Thessalonians' question, and if it reveals their proper anticipation that we ought to have as we await Christ's return, Paul's answer to the question reveals his desire to see the Thessalonians grow in knowledge and understanding of their Savior. You see, his desire here, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, so that you may not grieve without hope. And as Paul puts it here, I think we have another example of good theology being at the heart of true joy and right living. As I prepared for this message, I was amused to find that multiple commentators that I consulted on this passage referred back to one of the most famous Peanuts cartoons in which Linus and Lucy are dialoguing and uh, they're looking out the window at it raining very hard. And Lucy says, wow, look at it rain out there. I sure hope it doesn't flood the entire world. And Linus looks at Lucy and says, it won't. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God has promised that it will never again flood the entire earth. And he's put the rainbow in the sky so that we might be sure of this promise. And Lucy responds, wow, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus's response is, good theology has a way of doing that. It's a great response. And that's, I think, what we see in Paul's response here, that we might have a true knowledge of the return of the Lord. See, true knowledge of the return of the Lord, but the expectation and the hope of the return of the Lord is not just a fact to have in our minds, but rather it is something that impacts the hope that these believers have. Death has always and appropriately been met with grief. But the nature of that grief is very important. You'll note in this passage that Paul does not forbid grief. Paul does not say that he wants to inform them so that they will not grieve. He says that he wants to inform them that they may not grieve without hope. See, the truth of the return of Christ and the truth that Paul is going to impart about the return of Christ is truth that will arm the Thessalonians with the ability to grieve with hope, with a confidence in the return of their Savior that will transform the darkest hour that many will face as they face death and the grief that comes with death. 
And so uh, Paul says that whereas the world, where the pagan world around them may face grief with nothing but the darkness of death, the separation that death is, the finality, the finality of an end that death is, so that grief is all there is, here, right understanding of the return of Christ will see death not as an end, but as the beginning of a much more glorious future. So we can be confident, as Paul will say in the coming verses, that we and the dead alike, at the return of Christ, will be with him to share in his glory. And this gives us the ability to grieve with hope. And so we see here this question that the Thessalonians ask. This question that reveals their deep sense of anticipation for the return of Christ and also reveals Paul's desire to give true knowledge, true doctrine, which will then impact the hope, the response, the living that the Thessalonians can have. But as we answer this, as Paul goes on to answer this question then, in answering it, he begins by giving the Thessalonians the ground or the basis of their hope. And for those of you who were on the youth retreat with me, you might begin to think that I'm a broken record, but I assure you that the theme that we talked about last weekend is at the heart of this verse here. Look at verse 14 with me. What is the basis or ground for the Thessalonians' hope in the return of Christ? Well, Paul says this, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, the ground or the the basis of our hope is our union with Christ Jesus. We may often refer to salvation as a thing or event, like uh, God has given me salvation, as if salvation is this thing that sort of changes hands or or this thing that, that God gives us. But, Salvation is nothing less than Jesus himself and being united with Jesus himself. You may remember in John chapter 17 verse 3 that Jesus talking about eternal life says this is eternal life that you might know God and his son Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Or you might think of Romans um, 6 cha- uh, chapter 6 verse 6 where Paul declares if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or we might think, uh, as Jesus says in John 14, verse 19, because I live, you will live. See, our understanding of salvation, our, our, our future hope, is not a thing that is given us, it is Jesus himself. It is being in relationship with Jesus himself. It is being joined to, united with our great Savior Jesus himself. And it is as we are united to Jesus that we can see the great hope that we have. And so Paul says here that the dead in Jesus have nothing to fear. For they are united to Jesus. And therefore will experience the resurrection life with Jesus. You might put it this way. Being united to Christ means that what happens to Jesus will happen to us. Or what is true of Jesus will be true of us because we are joined to him, united to him by faith. And so, the dead in Christ 
need not worry about missing out on something of the glory of Christ's return because if they are united to Christ, joined to Christ through faith, they will be with him. What is true of him will be true of them. And so this union with Christ is at the, is at the center of Paul's uh, description of the basis or ground of the Thessalonians' hope here. Because Jesus will come, if we are united to him, we will therefore be with him when he comes. A union with Christ. Now, if we think about this for a second, this gives us even greater comfort as we think about the coming of Christ. If you're like me, the coming of Christ can be something that may be hard to sort of grapple with or or get our, our hands around because we don't have a parallel experience. What exactly will this future return of Jesus be like? We don't really have something to compare it to in our experience. But what Paul's saying here is that the return of Christ and our future hope and glory with Christ is not something that is uh, totally in our minds or in our imaginations. Because the future coming with Christ and our future hope with Christ is grounded in something that has already happened in history. It is something that will happen in the future in history precisely because it is based upon something that has already happened in history. The death and resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus, which... Paul and others have been witnesses of is the very ground, the very the pattern, the very basis upon which the future return of Christ and life with Christ will be based. You might uh, think uh, about going into your backyard and finding a small sapling growing up in your backyard. And if you're like me and you know nothing about trees and you see this small tree, you might start speculating, I wonder what this tree will be. And if you're like me, you might say something like, I hope that this will be an apple tree so that I can make lots of apple pies. Or maybe you'll say, well, I hope that this will be a peach tree because I like peaches better than apples. And this, this hope is this sort of um, desire that's being expressed, but, but you have no, no confidence, no, no knowledge, nothing that will indicate what the future of this tree will be. That is not what our hope in the return of Christ is like. Our hope in the return of Christ is not something like, oh, gee, I sure wish or, or, or I sure hope it will be like this. No, the future return of Christ and our future glory with Christ is based on something very real that has happened in history, and it is the death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. He said that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. He uh, says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If the Thessalonians are wondering what is going to happen to these brothers who have died before the return of Christ, they need look no further than what actually happened to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the beginning of the resurrection of the dead. And if you think about it, Christ is like the first apple that has already grown on that tree. So we look at that tree and say, ah, I see what's going to come from this tree. The first fruit has already happened. And so our hope for the future is not a speculative hope. It is a hope that is sure, it is firm, because it is based on an event that really and truly happened in history already, in the resurrection of Christ. If you think about a harvest, you might be looking out at your field wondering if a harvest will come. 
That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a harvest that has already begun. The harvest that is full of joy and expectation and confident hope because we see what that harvest is going to be in the resurrection of Christ. And this is what Paul says. Don't you see? The reason we can be so confident about what is going to happen is because of something that has already happened. Jesus died and rose. Therefore, be confident in your hope of Christ's return and of your resurrection with Christ. Because since Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, Paul says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Maybe to sum up as one commentator put it, our future hope is not a place or a thing. Our future hope is a person who has lived, who has died, who has risen, and who we are united with. The, uh, to refer again to the analogy of marriage, as you approach your marriage, it is not the event of the wedding itself that draws all your attention. Perhaps in today's world of $30,000 weddings, the event takes more attention than it need to. But the hope is that the, the wedding event is not what draws your attention. It is being united with this person you are ready to marry. And that is our hope, being united with Jesus. We are awaiting full and final union with Jesus Christ. This ground of our hope speaks back to our anticipation as well. Perhaps you're, you're sitting here thinking, well, I want to desire Christ's return, but I don't feel this sort of passionate, emotional uh, uh, desire for Christ to return right now. How can I increase my anticipation of Christ's return? Well, the answer is not that you have to sort of work up these emotions that will then sort of uh, get you into this great, excited state about Christ's return. No, the answer is that we need to run to Jesus and be with Jesus and spend time with Jesus. As we spend time with Jesus and grow in our relationship with Jesus and our union with Jesus, we will begin to desire more and more the full union that we will have with Jesus. We grow in that desire and that anticipation of Christ's coming by being with Jesus. It's like a long-distance relationship. Friends of mine in college, one lived in Michigan, the other in Florida for two years, looking forward to their wedding day, talking day after day. And as they talked day after day, their sense of anticipation to be together grew. And that is the same with us, brothers and sisters. If we are with Jesus day by day, seeking Jesus, pursuing Jesus, praying with Jesus, reading about Jesus, hearing Jesus speak to us as we are with Jesus. Our anticipation and our excitement about being more closely and fully with Jesus on that last day will grow. It's not something you have to dig up emotion for. Be with Jesus and he will give you that desire to be with him. So Paul answers the Thessalonians' question about their hope in Jesus, arguing that our hope is confident because it is based upon, grounded upon, our union with Christ, who has really in history died and risen again for us. That still leaves a lot of questions, though. If you're a naturally uh, inquisitive mind like mine, okay, great, I can have hope that Jesus is coming, but Paul, won't you give us a few more details about what this will be like? Can't you, can't you give us a little bit more of a picture here? of what this is going to be like. And so, having answered the Thessalonians' question, 
uh, about their hope, and having given the ground or basis of their hope, Paul then turns to give something of a description of their hope in verses 15 to 17. In these verses, Paul says this. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. There are a number of key things that Paul tells us about this reunion with our Savior, Jesus. First, we we read that Jesus will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And here Paul is giving us pictures that tell us something about the return of Christ. They are images that speak of Jesus' return with images of power, of authority, of summons, of command. Think of the cry of command that Jesus will descend with. And we think that this is none other than the voice of God that accomplishes its purpose and that does not go forth void. The word of God himself that does not go forth without accomplishing everything that he desires to accomplish. That's the voice of command that Jesus is coming with. You may be thinking of the voice of Jesus that commanded a dead person to rise already. When Jesus was on earth, he met Lazarus in his grave. And as Lazarus was in his grave, Jesus issued a cry of command, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. And it's the same cry of command that Jesus issued to the dead Lazarus that he's going to issue now to all the dead in Christ. And so all those who have died in Christ will be the recipients of the same voice. Lazarus, come forth. Brother, come forth. Son, come forth. You who I have died for, come forth. And that voice of command will accomplish what it desires to accomplish. That's the voice of command, the voice of resurrection, the voice of life and hope that Christ descends with. He descends with the voice of an archangel. When we think of the voice of an archangel, it immediately summons military images and and the cry of the captains of the army of Christ who are declaring victory over sin and Satan. They're declaring his sure victory, his accomplished victory, and now declaring the return of the rightful king over his people and his domain. The voice of the archangel, the captains of the army of Christ, who has defeated once and for all sin and Satan. We have the trumpet of God, and the trumpet of God is filled with many images throughout Scripture. The trumpet is used in Revelation as a picture of the wrath of God uh, descending uh, on, on those who have rejected Christ. But surely amongst all the images of, of uh, biblical pictures of the use of the trumpet, we shouldn't leave out the picture of the trumpet of God that was sounded throughout all of Israel on the day of Jubilee. This is described in Leviticus. And the trumpet of God that sounded throughout Israel on the day of Jubilee would announce freedom for all in Israel, setting at liberty all the captives. It would announce a year of rest for the land. 
It would announce that all land should go back to its rightful owners. It would announce that all people ought to do no wrong for they were in the presence of God as they were freed on the day of Jubilee. Surely that trumpet that sounded throughout Israel is just a foretaste of this great trumpet which will again announce freedom and liberty to the people of God. That will again announce the return of all the earth to its rightful owner. That will announce the final rest, the final Sabbath rest that Hebrews envisioned. And that will announce now the strength and freedom to do no wrong as we are fully and finally in the presence of our Lord. The sounding of the trumpet setting us free, setting all things to right, and declaring God returning to his people. This is something of the picture that Paul gives us of the return of Christ. Another detail that Paul gives us is we read that the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul gives sort of a a final verdict to the Thessalonians' question, what will happen to those who have died prior to the coming of the Lord? Well, Paul says here, those who have died in Christ will rise first. Their resurrection, therefore, will allow them or will, will bring them into the presence of Christ. They will miss nothing, but will be fully a part of this final day of the Lord. In fact, they will rise and join first to be with the Lord. But then all of those who are living, all of those who are living, will be caught up together with the risen dead. So that, and here's the key point, all of God's people, all of those who are united to Jesus, will together be with the Lord. They will all be united with their coming King. We will all be with Jesus, our Savior, as he returns to earth. And as Paul then goes on to state at the end of verse 17, not only will we all be united to Jesus, but all of us, living and dead, will be united with him such that we will always be with the Lord. This is our confident hope, our confident joy that this Jesus who has died for us, we will be with him forever, united with all those who have placed their trust in him. Then Paul says that we will go and we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air so that we will be with him. And uh, lest we misunderstand, we ought to know what this meeting the Lord in the air uh, constitutes. I've known some and many of you also who may look at this uh, as sort of a a catching up, a rapture that we will be sort of snatched away from the earth. But the word that's used in this text is a very technical word. It's a very specific word. And when Paul says that we will meet the Lord in the air, he's using a word that is used throughout Greek literature for uh, situations where dignitaries and kings are returning to their city. And what would happen is that a greeting party of the leading citizens of that city would go forth from the city to meet this returning king. And then they would all together accompany him back to the city so that he would return to the city with full celebration and a full welcome. And see, that's what's being pictured here. That all those in Christ will rise with Jesus that we might together come down with him to his kingdom. This is not something where we're snatched up to the sky and then we spend some time uh, in the sky with Jesus. No, this is, we rise to meet him and then come with him, united with him, united with our head, our groom, our husband, Jesus, as he returns in victory and hope and life to his rightful kingdom. And so we see Paul's conclusion here, that all believers 
living and dead, will always be with the Lord. The culminating truth of the return of Christ is that it is not just an event to look forward to with hope. It is an event that is the beginning of an eternal future. That we will always be with Jesus. So Paul fleshes out the hope that the Thessalonians have by giving them this description. But having given the ground of their hope and a description of their hope, Paul closes with these words in verse 18. Words that should give us action, impact of the hope that we have. Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Therefore, encourage one another. Well, how ought we to encourage one another? What should we encourage one another in? Well, we should first of all encourage one another with an eye toward this final day of hope. I don't know what you might be going through right now. I don't know what grief you might be experiencing, the loss of a loved one. I don't know what suffering or trial, what sickness or physical ailment. I don't know what suffering or trial you might be going through in your life now. I don't know what sin might be breaking you apart or your family apart. But encourage one another with these words. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. And all those who are united with Jesus will be with Jesus and will be with Jesus forever. So that our current afflictions are nothing compared to the hope that we have in the return of Christ. As Paul says elsewhere, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, encourage one another with these words. Whatever you are going through now is a light momentary affliction compared to the weight of glory we anticipate beginning at the return of Christ. Encourage one another with those words. But also we should encourage one another in how we are living in light of the final return of Christ. What powerful What more powerful motivator or counter to our temptation to sin could there be than the fact that Christ Jesus, our Savior, who died for us, will be with us and is coming back for us, will return to take us to be with Himself? I know not what sin you are struggling with. I know what sins I struggle with. Maybe it is bitterness towards a particular person over a situation. Maybe you are struggling over finding security and pleasure in idols of this life or of, of money. Maybe it is sexual temptation. I don't know what sin you're facing. But in whatever situation we find ourselves, whatever sin we are fighting, the fact that the Holy God is coming to destroy sin forever and to welcome us into our marriage with Him ought to be a powerful motivator to live for Christ. Peter puts it this way in Second Peter 3. As he is discussing the certainty of the coming day of the Lord, he says, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening day of the Lord? In light of the coming day of the Lord, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another that Jesus is coming. Therefore, be holy and do not sin. 
Encourage one another also with the words of the gospel, though. Just as we encourage one another to be holy and do not sin, we also encourage one another that the Jesus who is returning is the Jesus who died to cover every sin. And so we do not face this challenge or this encouragement not to sin with a sense of hopelessness or despair. We face it with a sense of hope because this Jesus has died for us. He's taken our sins fully upon himself. He gave us the hope. And nothing can separate us from the love of this Christ whom we are united to in faith. And so we ought to encourage one another with the words of the gospel. This Jesus who is returning died for you, loved you, took your sins upon himself, and is now returning because of his great love for you, to bring you in union with himself, to be with him forever. Encourage one another with the gospel. And finally, encourage one another. Because as you look out in the world around you, you will quickly realize that not everyone can grieve with hope. There are many around us who cannot grieve with hope. Brothers and sisters, there are many who are not looking forward to this return of Jesus, either because they don't know that he's returning or because they hate the God who is returning. And so, brothers, encourage one another that our hearts be broken for those who do not have Jesus. Encourage one another to have a renewed passion for those who will not be with Jesus on this day. Encourage one another that we might pray for the Spirit of God to give us boldness and wisdom in every opportunity and situation where we might proclaim the glories of this Jesus and the hope that can be had in this Jesus. So, encourage one another with these words. Paul was eager to give the Thessalonians hope by answering their questions with truth. So he told them the ground of their hope in union with Christ. He gave them a brief description of their hope with the return of the glorious Savior. And then he encouraged them that their lives could and should be impacted by their hope. And this is our hope too. May this sound theology set our minds at ease, motivate us to live for Christ in hope, and fill our hearts with unspeakable joy and delight and powerful anticipation and excitement at the great day when we will meet our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, what you have done for us is the defining moment, not only in each of our lives, but in all of history. And so we look forward to the great day based on your resurrection in which you will come again, the moment of all moments, the day of all days, that we look forward to the joyful return of Jesus. May we desire you. May we anticipate being with you. And may you change us more and more to give glory to you and to speak of you as we anticipate this day. All that you might be lifted up and praised. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.